Welcome back to the Plowcast. This is the third episode in our new series linked to our vows issue. I'm Peter Momsen, Editor-in-Chief of Plow. And I'm Susanna Black-Roberts, Senior Editor at Plow. In this episode, we'll be speaking with Kelsey Osgood about our visceral fears of high-demand religions, and with King Ho Lung about vows in scripture, in Christian history, and in our own lives, and how we can dare to make them. Kelsey Osgood is the author of How to Disappear Completely on Modern Anorexia, and she has written for the New York Times, the New Yorker, Long Reads, and the Washington Post, as well as two articles for Plow. She is working on a new book about millennial religious conversion for Viking Penguin. So, um, you have this piece, The Dance of Devotion, in the current vows issue. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you're getting at with that piece? Yeah, so I think really what I was trying to do was not, I don't think I really land on a grand unified theory of, of sacrifice or of, um, you know, um, devotion, but, um, I do think I was trying to tease out some of the ways that, um, these themes are approached, um, by, uh, religious communities or individuals and then contrast compare and contrast that a little bit with the way that these ideas are approached by contemporary secular people um Mm. and to see where you know in what ways have they diverged so an example that you give is someone who's given up you know a, a, a figure skater who's periodic who's like been eating very healthily and giving up a lot of cake for, you know, his or her whole life, um, essentially while training versus someone who's giving up, you know, shellfish and pork for the sake of a religious commitment. Those are, those are both kind of ascetic practices in certain ways, but they're described to the person who's doing them very differently. And they're, they're regarded differently by, by people who are watching them. I wrote a piece for Wired that came out in April about digital Shabbats, which are very popular. Um, sometimes people don't call them that, but you know, this idea of, oh, I'm going to take time off of technology for a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is often framed as very, very differently than the way that an Orthodox Jew who does that, like myself, who does that as a regular part of my, of my week. <laughs> and I was, you know, and basically feeling very skeptical that the idea that you could do it on your own terms, quote unquote. There are, there are like many examples of this. Giving up alcohol for a Muslim versus somebody who's, let's say, sober curious being the new kind of fashionable term for it. Um, or even giving up sex, which is actually kind of a trendy topic now. There are a number of books by um, secular people who, who, who decide to go through periods of celibacy. Um, and the way that they talk about it, uh, you know, and it's almost you. I don't want to make assumptions, but you would you would kind of. It's hard not to assume that that person would find the idea of somebody being celibate for religious reasons for forever potentially as um, deeply problematic. But for some reason, when yeah. it's done in the context of the contemporary self oriented culture, then it's okay. <laughs> so what is the what is the difference? I suppose one is understood as a commandment, right, and the other is. Uh, a kind of form of self-expression. And if it's packaged that way um, as an expression of my sort of personal flair, my autonomy, then it's okay. But if uh, a religion is telling me 
to give up sex or alcohol or pork. Um, that seems to get people's hackles up. If I say, if I make a rule for myself, then it's okay. But nobody else can make a rule for me. A lot of the times it has to be framed as if it's kind of a wellness initiative. It has to be done in service of my mental health or my creative self or any you know other number of things that amount to self-betterment. And then, for example, in the, in the Shabbat example, you know, um, taking 20, the reason that taking, for me anyway, the, one of the reasons that taking 25 hours to step away from um, my everyday life and be with my family and prioritize worship and be with my community members, the, part of the reason why that's so restful is because um, it is a respite from the that very idea of self-actualization, that it's like that I should be every waking moment thinking about how to make myself and my life into a more optimized version. And so if the, so if it, the thing itself becomes a tool for self-optimization, then you're never going to get what it is that you're looking for in the first place, which is a, a, a respite from it. You know, if you're thinking about like doing like Sabbath as a life hack, it's kind of, it's missing the point on, on that level. Contrast this with the Talmudic discussion of whether it is better to perform an action because you're commanded to or because you want to, which rules firmly on the side of commandment. Greater is one who is commanded to do a mitzvah and performs it than one who is not commanded to, to do a mitzvah and performs it. The like primary Kantian commandment in our you know, society is you must self-actualize. And you must do that on your own terms. Um, and doing something out of obedience is like deeply suspect. deeply suspect and deeply scary in some ways. I don't remember actually if I quoted this. There is another. There's another um, Talmudic quote that's very uh, sort of fitting into this topic. Um, I believe it's Ben Azaria who basically says, you know, um, there are all these. There are all these things that I want to do. I mean, his examples, I think, are eat, eat the forbidden fat, so um, a part of the uh, uh, of a cow or an animal that that is considered not kosher, and um, maybe something sexual also. And he says there are all these things I want to do, I, and I wa I really want to do them, but what am I supposed to do? God says I can't do it, so t tough luck for me, you know. And um, it, it there's this idea that you know actually you should kind of feel like you're giving something up. And that probably should hurt a little bit, actually. People write personal essays about um, giving up alcohol or giving up sex or whatever. Um, it, it, it's, there, it, people seem to be very reluctant to frame it as, an, as a hardship. It ha you have to really focus on, the w again, the way that it's serving me, the way that I found out that giving up this thing wasn't actually giving anything up. It, it really wasn't a sacrifice. One of the things that um, doing something out of obedience to the commandments does is that it focuses the, the action on the relationship that you have with God, on the covenant with God. It's, again, taking it away from you and it's making it into kind of like an act of love or an act of responsive obedience rather than on something that, rather than it being something that you feel is like deeply and authentically expressive of yourself. Um, and the idea that something can be a real act of love and it's maybe even easier for something to, to be an act of love and kind of responsive fidelity when it's, you know, when you're kind of not worrying about whether it's like deeply true to your authentic self, because like that, that's amazing to me. And I think really can be incredibly liberating because there is this 
kind of slavery to the authentic self that you can run into in contemporary life. And I, it seems to me that a lot of your work is about getting away from that kind of enslavement to the authentic self. I really had a deep concern about authenticity from a young age. I was always sort of curious, like, when am I being myself? And when am I performing? And what if, you know, the self in my head is different than the self that I present to other people? And is that lying? Is that um, duplicitous? And now I'm like the obnoxious person who um, I just am not really sure there is an authentic self, or rather, I'll put it this way. I, I'm not sure that it's something that people should spend a lot of time really digging for, because I it, it's just so elusive, this idea that you'll get like, and you know, this thing, this core thing that really is you. Um, I, I just think that maybe the human soul is more complex than that and and a little bit less knowable than that. What it does is it not only um, keeps you trapped in yourself, but as you point out, um, it pretty much blocks out any communal dimension because um, you can never really be part of a community that way. Uh, you're always, you know, in the middle of the stage with the spotlight on you. Um, you're never just part of a part of a we and and of course you know i i think our culture is very aware of all the p potential negatives of we's that sort of take over the eye right you know um i'm thinking of this piece that appeared in the new yorker a year ago on um the cult um nexium um which kind of gets into this idea of what is really a high demand religion right <laughs> um and um, repeats the the line that uh, that any religion um, <laughs> is just a cult plus time, right? Um, and this Nexium cult is really was really bad, was really manipulative, left le left people, you know, um, hurt and damaged and and exploited. Um, so that thing is 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 a real thing. Um, but it just struck me reading your piece, Kelsey, that. Um, a complete refusal to ever allow yourself to be vulnerable to that, uh, to that giving up of the self for the the sake of a we, is also actually denying a really basic part of what it means to be a human being. Um, we we are a social animal. We are we we want to be part of the, of a we. Whether you know, and um, most religions. Um, that 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 that's a a big part of what's at the core of them. It's not just about this transcendent, authentic self. It's mm -hmm. it's you're standing with brothers and sisters, right? Um, and that's yeah. that's what um, that's what s struck me as so interesting in your piece. Um, and I, I I guess I was just wondering what where what what do you see as the legitimate sides of sort of liberal modernity's worry about giving up um, th th that autonomy? How, how do we draw lines around, you know, the good ways of giving up one's autonomy versus the bad ways? I mean, there are the obvious bright line cases where, you know, like in the case, 
like in the case of Nexium, you know, fully submitting yourself to the whims of one individual can lead to people um, leaving themselves vulnerable to abuse. In religions, um, you have traditions that are passed down through a lineage. And you might, and I mean, certainly is the case in Judaism where there are lots of leaders. There isn't just one person that we all turn to. I'm sort of a Flaubertian in this idea that like, you know, you make your life very ordered and boring so that your work and your thought can be as like ridiculous and provocative as you want it to be. Sort of feel like in that case, I feel like people, you know, the the less group think or the less submission to the group, the better. I mean, I recognize there's fundamental tension in that because I am Orthodox. So there, you know, like I am, I am like buying into these certain non-negotiables. Um, but there's often a lot more wiggle room than, than people think. I think like at its core, the idea that the self should be important is not actually a bad thing. Where, where we go wrong is this like enormous overcorrection um, so that, so that then it becomes the only thing. Well, I, th- I, I mean, I, I definitely agree with what you just said. Um, it's the, the problem is not individuality, the individual, the self, um, uh, the ability, the freedom to make one's own decisions. Um, these are all super important things and at different times in history. And, and even now in certain situations can be undercut in ways that are a big problem. What, you know, and I, speaking as somebody who's part of a religious community myself, um, those things do need to be guarded and respected and preserved and not violated. And yet, if they are the only things that you dance around, <laughs> um, they actually drive you a little nuts. Yeah. Um, and they, they leave people disoriented and we're actually unhappy if we're only thinking about ourselves and our own authenticity and our own um, freedom to make decisions all the time. Um, it's, it's, there's something actually a, a little unnatural about it. Yeah. That's not a theological statement. It's more just sort of an observation. Um. <laughs> you see across, in, in almost all faiths, any, anyway, the faith that I have like a, a decent um, understanding of, um, there is a, there are tools to help you tap into self uh, self exaltation and also self abnegation, right? This idea that um, I'm I'm important, I'm a child of God, I have inherent worth, and also um, I'm not actually that important <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm going to yeah. die and, you know, coming into, um, the high holidays for Jews. Um, I mean, it's all over the, the Sidurim, the prayer book already, but particularly there are really beautiful prayers on Rosh Hashanah about the human being being, um, being like dust, being like a dream that drifts away, being this sort of fleeting, you know, um, uh, unimportant thing. And I think that, in, I think that you could make the argument that maybe in the past, uh, not only religion, but just sort of the cultural mainstream maybe played up um, the the unimportance of the individual. And so then to overcorrect, we play up the, the importance of the individual, but contemporary culture also hasn't really figured out how to tap into the 
self-abnegation element. How do, how do you, how do you teach people that part, which is really, I think very important for, for ironically, for, for the health of the self to understand that. I was reading a book, which is um, a kind of like examination of objectivism, like the Ayn Rand thing as a cult. And it is the most fascinating thing because this is obviously Ayn Rand's whole philosophy is the kind of maximum exaltation of the individual. Like it is that it's it's libertarianism on absolute steroids. Um, And what she surrounded herself with, the way that this kind of like movement functioned until 1968 when it kind of collapsed, was this basically bullying, like essentially cults around her if she decided that you were being, um, you know, a second hander or if you were, or that you were being, you know, insufficiently rational, like you would do anything to avoid her coming to that judgment of you. And (laughs) you would like, you would say whatever she said. It's the most amazing kind of contrast. So 99% of humanity is actually not kind of fully human yeah yeah and the ones who are you you have to prove that you're an individual by totally submitting to the judgment of this lady on the upper west side (laughs) 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 one area in which people still do seem to be comfortable with the idea that a person would give up a lot in order to reach the highest echelons of their discipline is athletics like that's one that kind of endures okay fine you can you know if you're if, if somebody wants to be a nun, they give away all these things. But what's the point of that? If there's no God, if there's no higher meaning, but really, what's the point of tennis? You know, like what's the point of any of this? Uh, there, there's this idea that like certain things. Well, we just it's just a good. We know it's a good, um, and now we've decided, or you know, a lot of people have decided that religion is just not a good. So the discipline doesn't doesn't lead to anything but but, yeah but the but question like query whether you know gymnastics is a good let's back to your rosh hashanah prayer that that flesh is grass (laughs) we do see the majestic in a human body doing something that's um that's most human bodies couldn't do you know when you do watch someone who is incredibly good at something it does seem like they're pointing towards some kind of transcendence. They're pointing towards some kind of human perfection that like points to the divine um, and kind of reveals something more than just every day. Um, but if but if there's not an actual transcendence for that to point to, like why is gymnastics like there's no there there. It's just it's it's just fancy movements of your body. Like it's not it's not expressing anything true. Right. I mean, the fact that Federer is like absolutely incredible, you know, hitting this ball around on a court is completely meaningless unless you're, you're like, wow, human beings can do this. Human beings, this is the measure of man. This is, this is incredible. And yet what is man that you are mindful of? Like it's, it's this kind of weird perpetual, which you see in the Psalms a lot. Um, I was, I, what is it? The the psalm that's the last one. That's the psalm. The last psalm of David. That's the kind of coronation psalm for Solomon. I was kind of reading it because of the death of um, Queen Elizabeth. Within the psalms, in particular, there's this constant like, you know, human like what what is like astonishment at human beings, and yet like total abnegation and the great and and sort of focus on the greatness of God, and it kind of it goes back and forth, and like this is you see this throughout the scriptures. 
Um, and I, I just don't think that one makes sense without the other. Like it, it is this kind of concept. It's almost emotion. It's not, it's not like a sort of set of principles or a final thing that you can settle on. It, it's, it's a sort of set of um, experiences of being human and what that points to and, and letting it point you to God and then letting God point you back to your fellow human beings. Like that's kind of, I don't know. All right. Now I'm getting really mystical. Sorry. Yeah. No, no. That makes a lot of sense. So one of the things that's interesting to me is just the the level of fear that people have I, of um, and fear in particular of obedience, fear of making, you know, taking on a set of commitments that that really do bind you. I wonder whether like whether you could like talk about like what your experience has been um taking on those commitments like is is that have you felt oppressed do I feel oppressed I would say um no I don't feel oppressed I can see how somebody who um who you know I chose this so it would be a little weird to choose something and then feel oppressed by it. Um, I'm also a commitment file. You know, people are always talking about like being a commitment phobes. I really like committing to things. Um, I like um, long projects. I like endurance. The experience of, of being a human with no commitments was just so, um, uh, was just, so depressing and unmooring that, um, I, that, you know, it, it's just so starkly better to me to, to, to be a part of something, um, where I feel like I have all these active ways of expressing my faith and my commitment to transcendent metaphysical principles. Um, because not having that was so, for, was for me so much worse. Um, I will say that it is objectively true that my life is more limited now than it would be were I to not be religious. I mean, I cannot, there are lots of things that I quote unquote can't do. I mean, technically I could do them. Nobody's watching me. I could go eat a ham sandwich right now and nobody would know, you know, but I would know. And, um, I... I feel, I believe that, that God would know too. And I, that, that limiting, that the, the fact that my life is a little bit more, is more limited than it would have been had I never become religious, had I never, never converted, that there are, there are logistical challenges to that. It's not always nice. Um, you know, tr for, for example, this is going to sound very superficial, but I'm just going to say it like traveling is a nightmare. If you're an Orthodox Jew, you know, there's, you can't eat anything. Um, you're, you're constantly having to deal with, like, I have to go to a wedding this weekend and I'm, I'm flying across the country to go grocery shopping. It's basically how I feel. Um, and I mean, the wedding will be nice too, but, um, but you know, there are lots of things that are more difficult uh, logistically to do. And, and that's real. And I do feel that. And it's not like I just, I'm not like a, beacon of light. My personality is not very mystical. I'm not like a, you know, like, oh, it's all for the greater good. Like I get irritated by that. Sure. Another thing that I see coming up a lot now is that because of this, um, fixation on 
never having to sacrifice things and never having to limit yourself and, you know, always be self-actualizing. I think that a lot of the times when people don't have a model for that in other areas of their lives, it's very difficult for them when it's forced upon them. Even if I had never converted, I have two toddlers. My life was always going to be logistically more complicated with two toddlers. But so, you know, it's not that it's not that my choice was between like a more limited life and a life of like endless possibility. I just don't think anybody's life has endless possibility. But even if I did, I think that having a framework um, has both helped me feel, um, no, has really, it hasn't helped me feel more authentic. I still think about that all the time. Like, am I just play acting in my life? Like, I still feel like I'm just kind of, sometimes I'm pretending to be these things. I'm pretending to be a mother. I'm pretending to be a Jew. Uh, do I really feel these things? What is it? Re- how do I really feel? But I feel like religion, having a religion, having a religious faith as my foundation, it gives me an off ramp for that. And Judaism in particular, as a theology, is very forgiving to stuff like that because it's much more, it's like there's this famous idea that your actions are really more important. So don't stop worrying about your feelings. Stop worrying about how you feel, you know, like how you perceive yourself and just do the right thing. That's really what God cares about. That's what other people care about at the end of the day. If you're giving charity, the person who gets the charity, they don't care whether or not you really felt that you were doing it for the right reasons. Um, they they are grateful for that. And so there's just a place where, it, you know, I feel in my faith tradition where it goes, all right, enough of this. Like, let's move on. Let's get on with our lives. Let's do the, the, the things we know we need to do. So that part is like actually enormously liberating for me. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I can completely respond to that as a member of the Bruderhof. I know I'm never going to own the car I dreamed of as a 19-year-old. You know, there's certain kinds of vacations I'm never going to take. I'm never going to do a lot of skiing. You know, there's there's all kinds of things that are just off the list. Um, but uh, you only have one life to live anyway. And and the joy of it is, is knowing that you've found the thing you are meant to be doing and that you're doing it. Um, there's only so much stuff you can fit into 70, 80, 90 years if you're lucky anyway. Mm-hmm. So you you came to Orthodox Judaism as an adult. Um, and as you said, you, you, you chose it, right? Now you're bringing up um, kids within that tradition mm-hmm. who will, at least in their formative years, not have chosen it. So how do you think about that? Um, how do you think about kind of the next generation and how have you had conversations about, um, you know, the ways that your kids are going to grow up and maybe ask you questions about things they couldn't do? I mean, I worry about it a lot. This past weekend, they went to a birthday party for um, a friend of my husband's from college's son who's around the same age as my older son. So five, he was turning five. My older son, I had, my older son's five, my younger one's three. He's going to be four in November. And I had really, my older son, um, he's kind of in the sweet spot where he's like old enough to understand what it is that he's supposed to do, but young enough that he hasn't really grappled with, oh my gosh, like, is there a God? Like, why am I doing, you know, like he doesn't have existential 
um, concerns yet. So anyway, they go to this birthday party and I had told my older son, the food there is not going to be kosher, you know, so don't eat it. I know it's disappointing to see kids eating cake. Um, and to, but you know, we'll have, we'll have our own treat at a different time. And he's very aware of like, but my younger son at this birthday party, who also is like very into um, sweets, so <laughs> this tracks with his current fixations, was very upset. I wasn't there. My husband was there, had, to, had taken them to the birthday party, but he was really sad. Um, and he said, I, I just want to be like the other kids. Um, and of course, that makes me feel sad for him. You want your kids to have whatever they want, really. Um, even if you recognize that them not getting whatever they want all the time is, uh, is good for them. Um, it was the way, the way that he phrased it. I just want to be like the other kids that was, that really hurt a little bit. You know, you can't tell your three-year-old like the value of, of separatism or like, it's just not going to compute. To what degree do I feel that it's necessary for them to not partake of certain, um, certain, you know, uh, activities that are quote unquote like not religious? Like, does their whole where to where does their Judaism have to extend in their life? Are they Jewish? You know, is it the focus of everything? Can they can they just go to a birthday party? Apparently not. Apparently they just can't. They can't just go to a birthday party, quote unquote. But um, I think, and I think this is something about my own anxieties, about my own life in, in the moments when I feel like I'm not actually doing something that's Jewish. I'm, uh, or, you know, I'm not, I'm not spending that time, spending time, I'm, I'm watching something on TV instead of studying or whatever. Um, you know, um, it taps into this old anxiety of, of, of self, um, self-fashioning, self-sculpting, you know, should I always be pointed in a certain direction or can I ever just let loose or let my guard down or whatever? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I just hope that as they get older, their school and their community and we will be able to explain for them, you know, why we feel it's valuable, maybe seeing models of it, I think you just do the basic things and hope that it sticks and that if they have a period of rebellion, which I suspect they will do, especially it's my older child. I really feel like will will have his moment. Um, I, I do. He's pretty, I mean, again, even though the things he's pretty good about now he is, but I just feel like someday he's, it's, he's, he's a questioner. So, um, so it'll come up. Um, and uh, I don't know. I hope, I think I, I have, you know, the dream of one day they'll say, you know, you did this to me. You may, you put me here. But I also wonder if that isn't like part of parenting for everybody, even secular parents that you give your kid the life that you think that you would have wanted as a child. And then you just hope that they don't hate it. <laughs> I don't know. So to what degree, I mean, the other thing that I was just sort of thinking about as you were talking is that like, you know, in as much as I, I think that God actually did give Moses the law, I like that actually happened. There's, there's a question of reality here. Like you are, obviously we have some differences about what happened later, but um, you are responding to something that actually, that the, the actual God of the universe actually did. Um, so like, you know, it's not, it's not taking on, you know, an arb like an arbitrary, um, 
commitment to a faith tradition. How do you think about that? I think like all modern Orthodox Jews, I'm able to hold a lot of beliefs in me at the same time. I, I believe, yes, I believe that um, God gave Moses the law at Sinai. And I believe, like all Orthodox Jews, I, I guess, um, that the oral law was also handed down at Sinai. But I also am able to believe that the Talmudic sages were not uh, philosophizing in a vacuum, that they were responding to um, the cultures and the circumstances of their times. And how can these two things be true? How can the oral law have been handed down, but also when we approach it, we're approaching it from a, um, with the, with history in mind, we're thinking about what the realities on the ground must've been like, that doesn't seem like it could be possible. There are a lot of ways into this. Um, one of them being, you know, that, that, um, that I don't believe that God created any humans in a vacuum and that, um, you know, while we are, um, and even today, while we are, you know, while he is here and present um, and controlling everything in our lives, he's also allowing us to make decisions and to to deal with the consequences of those decisions and not interfering and, and forcing us to behave one way or another. It, it's challenging to have all these, to feel all of these things and to feel when you um, approach um, sacred texts that you're doing so with the correct amount of reverence and that you believe that the things that happened in there are literally true, but you're also able to look at them in some senses, allegorically, not, not as straight allegory, but, but as, as imparting a lesson to you here on earth thousands of years later, and as, as, and as existing as a work of art. Um, and that all of these things are, are happening or are, are exist within this book and in this tradition at the same time. Um, yeah, I don't know. Does that make sense? It definitely makes sense. It's not that different than I think a Christian approach. And I think that does also get back to what we were talking about in terms of parenting. You know, I'm not thinking about it in terms of my own kids. Um, one reason that I'm not that worried about my kids asking me those questions about what I missed, and actually my teenagers already do on some things, <laughs> um, is that um, it's not that every aspect of our lives is, you know, I feel is, is divinely commanded, but it's a sort of expression of a calling um, that I've, I believe partakes in a reality, right? And that's... Um, so it's not some arbitrary lifestyle rules that we came up with as your parents and have forced you, our children, to endure, but rather, you know, you're part of a story um, that is real and um, that that ultimately expresses what what we understand to be God's will, you know. Uh, and so, what I want is for you to to, to learn you know, to recognize that even through the things that may feel like deprivations or uh, stuff you wish you could have done. Yeah, I think, I mean, again, I think Judaism is, um, 
I mean, sometimes I think the questioning and the doubting is a little bit overblown when people like to say, oh, you know, it's totally fine to have doubts and questions in Judaism. Or people like to focus on that because it gives, <laughs> especially if you're um, on the more liberal end of the religious you're, spectrum, it gives you like a lot of... Right. You're in perpetual joke. Yeah, mode. yeah, yeah. Totally. Um, and, you know, I think, and it also people are like, well, it's totally optional to believe in God. I'm like, is it though? It's like kind of the first <laughs> commandment. Um but, I, but that being said, there is a lot of space in Judaism to ask questions. I mean, that's what the entire Talmud is. It's just these people asking questions and trying to refine their answers over and over again and disagreeing. So there is like a framework for this. It's a very common thing. And there are, um, and so I think that, you know, justice with authenticity and, and you know, um, I think Judaism is... <sighs> It's nice because it's not it's not um, afraid, I suppose. As as a theology, there's a it's not afraid of that um, of of that line of inquiry. So you know, when my kids are teenagers and they have these questions, if they come to me or they come to their teachers at school or to the rabbi, I don't think anyone will be absolutely horrified and shocked and appalled to hear that they're actually struggling with with God or with some elements of the mitzvot or whatever it may be. I think that this will all be very par for the course for, for the figures in their lives. Yeah. Well, that's how it was for me also. Um, you know, and, and I think that's part of actually getting back to what does a healthy sort of self-abnegation look like? And it's one where it's okay to ask really tough questions and struggle through stuff and come to your own true convictions and where there's a kind of self-confidence and on the part of the community that, um, you know, um, we're confident enough that it's okay, you know, and in fact, we encourage you, um, to come to your own convictions. I, I, in, in closing, um, I, I, I would wonder Kelsey, if you'd be able to share what, what is one practice of devotion of self-abnegation that you kind of like don't like, but really appreciate? Yeah, I would say for me, the one that I struggle with in Judaism the most is keeping kosher. It is about self-abnegation in the same way that like a lot of commandments are, which is just that the self, okay, you're not in charge anymore. This other, you know, God is in charge and you're not, and you just have to do what you're told to do. The reason that I struggle with it is because I find it, well, there's a few reasons. Again, I find it the most challenging, the most logistically challenging. And it's just, I feel rude. It feels rude all the time to refuse food, to um, to have to explain to people, you know, actually it has to do with like the heat and your oven. And, you know, how does that not come across as like your oven is too, is like not good Unclean enough Unclean or something, you know, yeah. In my, yes, in my head, I'm like, there's no, I mean... I am a reasonably articulate person, but it just never works. <laughs> um, well, I, this has been totally fascinating. <laughs> and um, I, it just, it, what the, I'm so again, looking forward to the book. Um, and uh, thanks for coming on. I'm sure we will have you on again. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. I'm happy to come back. It's like, it's like chatting with friends at this point. <laughs> it's so good to talk, Kelsey. And now, welcome to King Ho Lung. King Ho is a senior research fellow at St. Mary's College, University of St. Andrews, where he co-directs the research initiative Widening Horizons in Philosophical Theology. Welcome, King Ho. You know, you've written this really fascinating piece that I learned so much from. 
about how different people have thought about making and keeping and breaking promises, oaths, and vows. And sort of in the background of all those things is the idea of someone who is bearing witness to you making promises, vows, and oaths and, and enforcing them. But uh, you start off the article uh, by quoting Taylor Swift, uh, which was really great um, because that wasn't something I was expecting when uh, before I read your draft. Sure. Yeah. The uh, <laughs> I have a um, kind of um, uh, ongoing uh, complex relationship with Taylor Swift in my uh, so-called research. Beginning with Taylor Swift was kind of a a way to um, somewhat illustrate the um, a sense in which when one thinks about um, promise making, uh, especially when it's at its most serious uh, cases, such as the um, such as oaths and vows. There's some kind of sense of um, an appeal to the transcendent or even uh, the divine. So, um, uh, as I uh, wrote in the uh, in the piece, so, you know, uh, Taylor Swift when uh, she mentions um, uh, vows in 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 her song "Speak Now," which refers to um, the marriage uh, marriage vows. And so that's you know when we picture that is. Um, always in a sacred space, and indeed, in his in Taylor's um, Taylor Swift's later, uh, more recent song, or at least the and uh, yeah, more recent song, and even more recent recording, uh, um, of the ten minute version of All Too Well, which I also quoted in the piece, she explicitly refers to um, the kind of making of promises in terms of an oath, um, which she kind of. Um, uh, calls a sacred prayer. So the kind of sacral um, or even uh, transcendent element uh, uh, is always there when people want to make promises. Um, uh, almost intuitively, that when when I'm if I'm being serious about make the making and keeping of my promise, I have to appeal to something that is beyond me, or that is, or even beyond everything else, that which is the greatest, that which we sometimes call God. I actually, I, that is like a, a line from Taylor that I, that really rings with me. You kept me like a secret, but I kept you like an oath. And it's so, it's perfect because the secret is the kind of like flippant and it's private and it's enclosed. He's keeping her like a secret in the sense that like he's not taking it seriously. Like he's not going public and he's, and he's like maintaining plausible deniability and she's keeping him like an oath that's sort of like externally directed, like asking God to witness her fidelity. Yeah, and there's all kinds of um, very interesting parallelisms going on. But even to think about the <laughs> sacred as that which is set apart from uh, uh, from all else, there, so there is it's an other element of hiddenness or separate uh, or separateness uh, or distinctness uh, um, that is going on thematically there. So I guess we shouldn't be surprised that given that. You know, the idea of vows and oaths sort of implies calling on a higher power, as they say in Alcoholics Anonymous, um, that when we turn to scripture, the language of vows and promises is all over. But you focus on three kind of figures through history um, who looked at scriptures, the way scripture talks about vows and oaths, and kind of developed it over time. Do you mind um, just kind of giving a quick overview of 
who those people are. We can start with Philo of Alexandria. Um, I think he's the first one you treated. Could you tell us a little about him and and why was why was he concerned about this? So Philo of Alexandria was born um, around twenty BC uh, and lived until fifty AD. So um, so um, by that <laughs> we can see that he was a uh, contemporary with uh, Jesus Christ of Nazareth and. Um, during at that time in history, and you know, for the uh, centuries following that, Alexandria was kind of the kind of hub of um, uh, Greek philosophy and particular Platonism. So Philo is a, quite an interesting figure because he's a um, he was a um, a Jewish uh, philosopher, but also um, had a lot of um, uh, Platonic elements in his way of thinking about things. And so we, what we find in Philo is an engagement with the um, Hebrew scriptures from a, um, let's say, a very uh, platonic um, point of view, which has certain um, uh, overlaps with uh, Christianity later on. But what is interesting, I think, um, the reason why I chose Philo and compared him to um, uh, two later Christian uh, thinkers, uh, namely Thomas Aquinas and Martin Luther, is that... Um, in these three thinkers, we find um, an account or a way of thinking about God that um, that are qu that that are quite different from each other. So Philo obviously was not a Christian. So one reason for juxtaposing uh, Philo with the Christian guys, if you will, is to see what difference does a Christian conception of God or a their conception of God or different conceptions of God make to how we understand the phenomena of um, making promises. The guiding principle and how they interpret scriptures also different because there are ultimately different conception of, uh, conceptions of God um, uh, at work in their ways of thinking. So um, I guess one thing I was trying to highlight in, in the bit on Philo that I talked about in my, in my piece was the fact that uh, there was a very, very strong emphasis on God as the one who is most high and the highest of all things. Philo says that if one wants to swear, uh, uh, <laughs> if one wants to swear, one has to swear by that which is most high. But because God is so great and so transcendent in that case, there is this kind of problem. On one hand, Philo wants to say that, yes, if one, if one ever wants to swear, one needs to swear by that which is most high. Because you want that which is most high, that which is greatest, to guarantee you know your promise in in some sense. But on the other hand, there is a conundrum there that well, how can we know that which is most high? That is surely something that's so great that is beyond our comprehension. So there, so is swearing even possible, or swearing by the most high even possible? So finally, comes up with this um, somewhat solution is to say that well, God gave us God's name, and we are to swear if we are to swear but at all, to swear by God's name instead of by God in God's self. And um, one reason why I mentioned this is in Philo's emphasis on that, on emphasis that we swear by God's name rather than by God, there is an element that is somewhat, um, there's an emphasis on God's self-revelation to human beings in the first place. That's why God gives us God's name. And here, um, one might say, and many have made this argument, that there is a proto-Christian thing going on because God gives us God's name in a word. 
what is distinctive about Philo's Platonism, as opposed to um, other Platonic figures in the uh, non-Christian Platonic tradition, is that there is the figure, or a concept at least, of the Logos at work in Philo, which uh, has certain similarities with the Christian account of the second person of the Trinity, which is also named Logos in the New Testament. But nonetheless, there is a sense um, that is still quite different from Christianity in the sense that Philo emphasizes that God is very, very unknowable, which is quite different from the Christian God who you know becomes a human being and reveals himself, reveals God's self to creatures who are it is interesting, though, I hadn't really thought of the Tetragrammaton as a kind of incarnation before, but that's kind of what he's, or at least what you're implying, um, is he's halfway to. Like the idea of um, God promising himself to Abraham and his descendants and God giving us his name is a kind of incarnation. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's in the same, it's from the same direction. It's, it's coming into the human world and making him accessible to us in that way. Is that, would that be overstating it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if God makes, um, let's say Moses or Abraham, whatever, makes someone that is not God a promise, what we can say that, well, God is giving them his word. So this word giving element, you can say, well, yeah, that's quite Trinitarian, isn't it? If, you know, what is, uh, how does the second, um, how, how do we understand the second person of the Trinity? It is the word of God that is given or generated by God the Father. And when we want to think, when we want to say that, you know, God gives someone his word, that already has a certain um, Trinitarian shape to it, if you will. We might also say that, yeah, when God created, uh, after God created things that are other than God, namely creatures, including human beings, in that uh, it is that act of creation, uh, as uh, the Christian tradition would t teach us, is based on the very fact that there is this eternal generation uh, that's going on, that this word-giving act that is eternal in God. But none the, and so it is this Trinitarian dynamic, that, uh, that Trinitarian character of God that lies behind God's act of creation. So how is that different then from the the Christian view of vows and oaths, um, you especially go into Aquinas and Luther, who are, of course, quite different, but at least they're both Christian. Yeah, so um, part of the, the, the engagement of, of, with Aquinas and Luther is because they were both amongst at, uh, at some point, and they have obviously quite personal relationships with the, the form of making vows. Um, but one on the level of the conception of God, that, that was... Um, there is something quite unique. They're representative of two ways of um, approaching God within the Christian tradition. So this, the, the cliche picture as it goes, is Aquinas begins with the one God before he thinks about the Trinity. So he defines God in these kind of divine perfection terms as God as um, uh, all loving, good, eternal, and so on. So referring to the oneness of God before the three persons. And is it, it, is, in, it is here where um, Aquinas draws on um, um, God's self-revelation as I am who I am to Moses in Exodus 3, that he refers to God as 
being itself. I am who I am. What I am is that I am. I am am, if you will. God is is. God is being itself. And God is eternally being in that way. So this is the way in which um, Aquinas starts his um, understanding of God. Whereas in Luther, Luther tries to begin all of this in some sense, um, uh, in a stronger sense, in the incarnation. So it begins with the second person, and then um, it is through the second person of the Trinity that we we, under, we get we have access to the revelation of the three persons, if you will, um, or the entire Godhead, if that if, if we can use that language. So what I was trying to highlight here is two different ways of um, thinking about the transcendent or thinking about the divine um, that uh, uh, in some sense impacts the way we understand um, how uh, whether we can speak of the divine nature in terms of a promise or not. Now, uh, one thing I'd like to get into a little bit is Luther on monastic vows. And you quote from his famous 1520 uh, um De votis monastica, de libertate Christiana. He also wrote a piece on specifically on monastic vows, um, where he basically, this is post monastic Luther, um, tells us don't don't do that. Very bad. Um, they by by taking on monastic vows, you give up the liberty of of the Christian. Um, these are works righteousness essentially. Um, vows, the kind of vows that we read of, especially in Hebrew scriptures, where they're quite common, um, were for him uh, kind of the opposite of gospel freedom. Um, and it, it, it strikes me as, as somewhat interesting that Luther, while he warned strongly against monastic vows, partly on the basis of his own, um, you know, spiritually unhealthy as he judged them experiences within the monastery. Um, you point out he, he did sort of endorse marriage, at least in the way he lived, right? I mean, he did, after all, marry Katerina von Bora and ha had children. Um, and yet from another perspective, you might say that by denying the sacramentality of marriage, which he certainly did, um, and making marriage a civil contract, he also wasn't that keen on sacramental marriage vows. For him, even marriage vows were something a little less than ma vows made in a Taylor Swiftian way. Um, is that a fair reading of Luther? Uh, that is one fair way reading of Luther. Uh, on this podcast, we love to get into Luther. We in, in various ways. I, I would say it's one fair way, but it's, I don't think it's the only way. One other reading of Luther would be saying that what he doesn't like about the monastic vows, or in some sense the overly sacramentalized account of vows, and in some sense he wants to blow them up in a sense because he wants to say that well, actually everything would everything belongs to God ultimately. So the very, the attempt to limit vows or the sacramental stuff to uh, particular practices is actually um, problematic because it does not um, acknowledge God's generosity uh, and God's um, way of self-giving in all forms of, in, in all areas of life. So that would be one way in which a Lutheran might respond to this kind of critique. 
Um, I yeah, I, I can see the arguments and charms of um, the attraction of both sides of the interpreting Luther, um, but uh, um, yeah, but I guess the the way in which Luther can be read in so many different ways is part of the charm and frustration of uh, Luther. So he sees monastic vows, which are taken sort of voluntarily only by certain people, as almost an undermining of the reality of the dedication of a person through baptism, which every Christian shares, um, saying that's not quite good enough, right? And so we need extra vows on top of that. The issue of vows is that it it, it sounds too much like contractual um, or obligationary language. And for Luther, he does not want to see the relationship between the divine and the creature, or between God and the human in transactional terms. Everything we do is owed to God. So in that sense, uh, Luther thinks that is a, is a bad understanding of, of the, uh, for lack of a better term, economy between the divine and the human, according to this um, very strong emphasis on divine generosity. Zooming way, way out to 21st century culture at large, where we're thinking about, you know, there's this Sigmund Bauman term, liquid modernity. Um, we talked a little about it on an earlier episode of this podcast. This thing, this, this water that we swim in, where everything is subject to change, where nothing is solid, where every commitment can be questioned and revisited. Um, it seems to me that just possibly um the kind of unbridled liberty this overreaction to legalism um is kind of like what is inspiring taylor swift to wish for something more like an oath and less like a secret um susanna help me out yeah is that I, making so any sense or am it I is i was i no you're not raving um i'm also wondering about like vow making and vow keeping as a kind of aspect of something that I think you're also interested in, um, King Ho, that, that's been part of at least some of what you're, you've written about, which is uh, philosophy as a way of life. And so what's the vow making philosophy of life? What, what is the vow? Ma- it's, it seems like, you know, um, it's, it's a, a sort of idea that is associated with um, Pierre Hadot. And like, there, there's this basic, like, recovery of the idea of like, you know, Socratic and pre-Socratic Greek philosophies as kind of like, you know, full-on kind of cults you join in a nice way, or uh, versions of sort of rules of life that you adopt. And it, it occurs to me that like what Taylor Swift seems to be looking for and what I think we in our, all our liquid modern kind of, um, you know, uh, rootless cosmopolitanism or whatever, um, what we might be looking for is vows as a way of life. Um, does that make any sense to you? Is that too much of a mashup? No, no not at all. Um, um, the two contemporary thinkers I quote, I, I reference in the um, piece, one is Taylor Swift, <laughs> the other is Giorgio Gambon. Giorgio Gambon is quite big into this whole form of life phenomena and how the monastic um, gives us a model of what he calls a form of life, which is a way of orienting oneself um, and liturgy being a kind of law for him. But I don't want to get, get uh, too distracted by that. But I think one thing that's interesting, and that goes back to the kind of um, uh, thing that we per- began to talk about, is in the um, in the act of, or in the phenomena of 
vows and oaths, there is this appeal to the transcendent or to the divine. And one way in, in which um, if one wants to put on a platonic hat to call this is also the good. So it's all of this, in a sense, yeah, there is trying to have a sort of binding way of life that I think many are aspiring to have. But I think one thing that underlying this um, yearning or desire is actually an ultimately a desire for the good. And I don't want to say that like all types of vows or, or, or whatnot um, are good because, you know, not all not, not always a binding are, are good. So you want, what we want to do is actually bind, bind ourselves to that which is good, um, to live the good life. So it's not just any way of life, but is a, a way of life that is lived in light of and towards the good or even conforming to the good. So uh, again, you can say that, well, yes, when we make promises and so on, when we give our word, that is in some sense in light of the good, who we might call God, who gives himself to us in a promise in the first place. And it's because of that, we can actually align ourselves with the one who is good. I, I, I guess I'd like to kind of ask both Peter and you, King Ho, obviously one of the main kind of loci in scripture that we've got for talking about vows is Jesus saying, um, make no vow, neither by... Um, by heaven for what is what what is exactly neither by heaven for that's god's abode nor by earth because that's god god's footstool nor by jerusalem because that's god's city um and anabaptists typically and historically have taken that very seriously and that kind of caused problems because although you know aquinas tries to make this distinction between a vow and an oath um you know vows being religious vows and oaths being things that you make with other people um Anabaptists kind of pulled back on that and were and kind of thought of both of them at the same time. And and oath making was kind of like the main political way of organizing. Like you would make an oath to your feudal lord. Um, so it was kind of like they were opting out of political structures. I guess I'm just kind of interested to know how Peter and you, King Ho, think of like why is it okay that we make vows? How do we understand Jesus's words there? What other kinds? What other aspects of scripture can we bring in to? help us, you know, think about why vows might be okay or in what context they might be okay. Well, King Ho, you quote that passage from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. Uh, Do not swear at all. So why don't you go first? <laughs> yeah, so um, um, basically it was what I, the interpretation given there was also um, belongs to the greater, the, the, the bigger narrative of the piece, which is emphasizing the um, the transcendent nature of the the divine uh, to whom we appeal to uh, to to whom we appeal when one wants to make serious vows, if you will, or serious promises. Um, and I I referenced um, uh, the Bible translator and church father um, Saint Jerome there, who actually um, is cited by Aquinas when Aquinas himself comments on that. And the interpretation there, which I take to be a um, relatively mainline magisterial Catholic and Protestant way of reading that bit, is to say that um, what Jesus is teaching there is to say that, well, do not swear by heaven, for it is the throne of God, it is not God in God's self, or swear by earth, which... Um, 
is God's footstool, or by Jerusalem, because that is the city of the great king, the city of God. So these things aren't God in God's self. And once, or if you want to identify that thing as the most high, that is essentially committing idolatry, because those things aren't God in God's self, but something lesser than God. So that is, I take it, as how the um, magisterial traditions um, uh, 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 interpretation of uh, that those um, verses that you just quoted. So you're actually asking me to fight with the magisterial tradition? That's what I'm here for, Pete. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess Anabaptists and Quakers, and I assume some other people, uh, crazies like Tolstoy, said, well, you know, Jesus said, do not swear at all. Um, So do not swear at all. Um, And actually in context, um, Jesus' point um, he's contrasting his teaching. Um, you have heard it said to, um, the old Testament's teaching, uh, do not swear falsely. Um, and he says, do not swear at all, uh, an intensification. Um, and then he sums up in, in verse 37, let your yes be yes. And your no be no, anything more than this comes from the evil one. Um, so, this is where, and Luther would not agree with me at all, but I think this is where the Anabaptist and Quaker and, and other non, not so magisterial <laughs> traditions come down on this is Jesus pretty, um, is warning us against instrumental, instrumentalizing God's name to get our own way with somebody else. Um, and that's why we shouldn't swear. Um, because we're supposed to be absolutely truthful. Yes, yes, no, no. Um, and it's an abuse of God's majesty to draw him into our oaths, which in this understanding, actually following an Aquinas, an oath is not something you make to God, but to another human being. So you're kind of drawing him in as a third person to my um, private promise to you, which may be about anything, right? It might be about some completely secular or sordid practical matter. Um, But by contrast, unlike Luther, the Anabaptists were fine with vows to God. And in fact, because of the emphasis on the voluntary decision of faith, which was symbolized by adult baptism, um, and they were a pretty big part of, for instance, uh, early Anabaptist baptism baptism ceremonies where there is a whole bunch of vows that you make where you give and yield yourself um, completely to God in in a way that other Christian traditions would understand as well, but emphasizing that they're done free willingly by an adult um, kind of does give them a greater prominence and centrality uh, in the understanding of baptism um, and in the understanding of what it means to become part of the people of God. So this is not that relevant to King Ho's peace. But then you're like, okay, well, but St. Paul made a vow and he cut off his hair and then obviously people are getting married. So it's complicated. Um, But But this isn't about vows. This is about swearing oaths. This is about swearing oaths. To to be clear, right? Yeah. I mean. Yeah. So would you swear an oath? No. Okay. Nope. I affirm. Okay. And um, if it says swear or oath or anything like that on a form, I'll cross it off and write affirm. 
Oh, you're such an Anabaptist. That's so yeah, great. That's right. so great. You're so hardcore. The of Allegiance for that reason. <laughs> Can I ask, how, how would you interpret the Hebrews um, verse then? Hebrews 6, 16. People swear by something greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Um, I, so this gets down to uh, how you bring Scripture together. Um and kind of which scripture rules when scripture seems to uh, be in conflict with each other. And I guess the Anabaptist rule is pretty much, you know, words of Jesus kind of trump them all. Yeah, so the red letters are really red. <laughs> yeah, the red letters are really red. Yeah, and of course you can abuse that, right? But in general, you know, and even Luther, right, would kind of do this, that scripture is the cradle in which the Christ child is laid, right? I'm still on. I'm still undecided. I mean, I'm officially an uh, magisterial Protestant, so I think I officially come down on King Ho's side here. But th- there's, you know, Saint Jerome's, you know, with you, so you're in good company. It's not just, you know. Well, I'm just reporting. Anyway. I, I'm not. I, I don't want to be taking too many sides here. Yeah. No, no, no! You've got to, you've got to take us, you got to take a stand. That's what this is about. You're not, a, you can't just be subject to liquid modernity, King Ho. Yeah, but okay. So, so, so oaths are one thing, right? It was kind of weird that we decided to do a whole issue on vows. I still, you know, our subs, our, our subscribers have been getting the issue, and I've been surprised at the level of enthusiasm for this topic. But to me, one big reason um, that people are so interested in forms of commitment, even at the risk of legalism, um, is that there's so little that's solid out there. And it's that background that explains, for instance, the way that people over-enthusiastically give themselves to ideas of nationalism or to certain kinds of social justice ideology, um, that Things like this assume an identity and a thickness and a, a life-shaping force um, because of an absence of other really, really solid, unquestionable commitments um, of the kind that in Scripture would have just been part of your daily life. The 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 you were living within a covenant for, for starters, either as a Jew or a Christian. Um, Certainly as a Jew, you would have had the opportunity of making vows. I mean, I was reading a fascinating book whose author I forget right now about, you know, vows in the Old Testament. And just um, the, according to him, you know, vow making was just this daily part of life for Israelites. It was like the, the private piety um, that sort of mirrored the temple's public religion. Um, and if you really needed something done in a way that would set Luther's teeth on edge, you, like Samuel's mother Hannah, would make a vow uh-huh. and promise God something, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. do ut deis, right? Yeah. The, uh, you know, it's very close to sort of Roman religion. Yeah. <laughs> in that sense. <laughs> and it feels, it feels very unenlightened in a way. It feels very sort of like... Um, uh, magical almost yeah. and, and, there, and 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 I think that that desire for that kind of unenlightened um, solidity is is what all the all the Taylor Swift lyrics are talking about and and partly I think what 
it is that people are responding to in this issue. Um, I, King Hope, bef- before just before we get to the very end of this, I do want to tell you that I've, I, it, I'd forgotten about this until you brought this mashup up at the beginning of this episode, but apparently I'd forgotten that two years ago, I actually, with a friend, started a Twitter handle called Charles Taylor Swift. It's actually at Tila Swift. We were mashing up uh, Charles Taylor and Taylor Swift. And uh, the first tweet that we did was, by definition, for the poorest self, the source of its most powerful and important emotions are outside the mind. The night is sparkling. Don't you let it go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on that note, um, King Ho, thank you so much for this. And you are going to be joining us in London for the launch of this vows issue in a couple of weeks. Uh, and we're very excited about that. Um, so if I forget if this is going to go up before that or after that, but either way, either you missed it, which sucks for you, or you can come join us in London. Um, and thank you again. And uh, we would love to have you write for us again. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, I look forward to meeting you, Susanna, and maybe Peter at the, uh, at the London launch. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast needs met and share with your friends. For a lot more content like this, check out plow.com for the digital magazine. You can also subscribe. $36 a year will get you the print magazine, or for $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits, from free books to regular calls with the editors, to invitations to special events and the occasional gift. Our members are are one aspect of the broader Plow community, and we depend on them as a kind of extra advisory council. Go to plow.com to learn more. Join us next week when we'll be talking with Justin Giboney about polarization and the politicization of everything, and with Lydia Dugdale about the Hippocratic Oath. 